Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It is Good Twos News Day and also my birthday. So let's go ahead and celebrate the things that are hap that are the happy things are happening today and none of the bad stuff. Well, depends on your opinion, I guess, some of this stuff. Today on Before Coffee. Senior official says he helped rig Pakistan elections. Hey, at least he came out with the truth. And a presidential rating has come out, and that's good news for at least a few presidents. Major research suggests humans can break free from tribalism. Hell yeah. And we talk about a new high-speed rail project between London and Edinburgh. Soaring over hills or playing with puppies. Study finds seniors enjoy virtual reality. Those stories are more, which is National Comfy Day. So get comfy, because we're going to be telling us the news on Before Coffee for February 20th, 2024. All right, let's go ahead and start with the first news story, which is from Channel News Asia. Coming out of Pakistan, a senior bureaucrat said on February 17th he had helped rig the country's elections. A week after polls marred by allegations of manipulation returned no clear winner. Likat Ali Chatta, a commissioner of the garrison of Rawalpinda, Pindi, where the country's powerful military has its headquarters, said he would head, hand himself over to police. There have been widespread allegations of rigging after authorities switched off the country's mobile phone network on election day and the count took more than 24 hours. The army-backed Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz PMLN, short of a majority, has announced a partnership with the Pakistan People's Party PPP, and a handful of small parties to form the next government. Tha said he had personally supervised the rating of votes in Rawalpindi before stepping down from his post. We cover, converted the losers into winners, versus the margins of 70,000 votes in 13 National Assembly seats, he told reporters. For committing such a heinous crime, I will hand myself over to the police, he said, also implicating the head of the election commission and the country's top judge. The election commission rejected Tha's allegations, but said in a statement that it would hold an inquiry. That will take four years, and by the time, you know, oh, you weren't supposed to be in power, but uh, well, it's already been four years. Uh, the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, a leading advocacy group, said after Chantha's announcement that the involvement of the state bureaucracy in rigging in Pakistan is beginning to be exposed. So good news. Little corruption has been revealed. Candidates from the PMN, PMLN and PPP claimed most of the seats in Rawalpindi, sweeping aside candidates loyal to Jane, the jailed former Prime Minister Imran Khan, the target of a sweeping crackdown. Khan's Pakistan's Tariq and Insaf PTI party called nationwide protests against the alleged rigging on Saturday. A small number of supporters took to the streets in the major urban centers, with the largest gathering of around 4,000 people in the stronghold northern city of Peshawar. In the central city of Lahore, a police detained senior party member Salman Akram Raja and around a dozen supporters surrounding the party headquarters, but said they had all been released by late afternoon. Senior PTI official Ali Muhammad Khan said after the protests, 
Chata's statements proved that his party was cheated. We must be returned our mandate, he told reporters in Islamabad. By Saturday night, social media network Twitter was disrupted across Pakistan, according to watchdog Netblocks. PTI defied a month-long crackdown that shattered its campaigning and forced candidates to run as independents, gaining more votes than any other party, but has been unwilling to enter coalition with its opponents, paving the way for PML-N to form the next government. So they found the corruption, they revealed, hey, we rigged it, but that didn't really change the outcome because the people who could have won wouldn't have had enough votes to actually lead a government and they don't want to be on anybody's team. So I guess all's well that ends well. Good job, yeah. Pakistan. Um, your story. That works in the, the works in one of the side stories I got here about the democracy index, and yeah. I was looking at it. Pakistan places quite low. Let's. Yeah, say. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at it, and uh, the uh, they actually name checked them by name in the in the big article. Let's see what it say about Pakistan. And I just read it. Of course, I can't find it now. <laughs> Pakistan was downgraded to an authoritarian regime while Angola was upgraded to a hybrid regime. <laughs> hybrid. Nice. Uh, half, half despot, half democracy, I guess. I don't know. Gotta start somewhere, but, uh, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, Angola's going up, Pakistan going down. Uh, and they're admitting they're cheating, huh? Okay, well, that's yeah, we rigged the election, anyway. by the way, guys. I'm stepping down. Okay, bye. Yes. That's refreshing, huh? Well, in, in other positive news, where this thing I just was reading is new rankings. This is from MSNBC Metal Blog with Steve Bannon, the author. New rankings offer bad news for Trump, good news for Obama and Biden. Hooray. Yeah, Donald Trump has long seen himself as a president of enormous historical historical significance to this point to the point he inquired about being he had the Mount Rushmore just six months into his term. Oh, okay. Evidently scholars studying American and president agree that the Republican is historically significant, not in the way he hoped, NPR reported. The twenty twenty four edition of the Presidential Greatness Project Expert Survey has Biden in 14th place, just ahead of Woodrow Wilson and Ronald Reagan. Trump comes in at 45th behind fellow impeachee Andrew Johnson and James Buchanan, the perennial cellar dweller in such ratings due to his pre-Civil War leadership. The list goes like this. One, Abraham Lincoln. Two, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Three, George Washington. Four, Theodore Roosevelt. Man, Roosevelt's are top four. Five, Thomas Jefferson. Six, Harry S. Truman. Seven, Barack Obama. Eight, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Nine, LBJ. Ten, JFK. And here's the bottom ten. Herbert Hoover, 36. John Tyler at 37. Zachary Taylor at 38. Millard Fulmer at 39. Warren G. Harding at 40. William Henry Harrison, 41. If you're, if you're worse than William Henry Harrison, he was only president for like a month. So, Franklin Pierce at 42, Andrew Johnson at 43, James Buchanan at 44, and defendant Jay Trump at 45. 
course, there's been 46 presidents. Uh, Grover Cleveland was president twice. While I'm mindful of the fact that these arbitrary rank rankings, one of many, should be seen as a fun conversation piece and an important scholarly work, consider some more or less random observations. While some related studies have separated Grover Cleveland's non-consecutive terms, I'm glad this one combined them. I suspect plenty of observers on the right will be outraged to see Obama rank so highly, but A, this wasn't the first to put him in the top seven, and B, I'm of the opinion that the Democrats' position is perfectly fair. I'd actually put Biden ahead of Obama, but he's still president. But I, I would put him ahead. He's done actually more. I think it's because they let him do more because he has more uh, he has more friendships having been in Congress since 1972. There has been some dreadfully bad presidents, but it's heartening to see defendant J. Trump ranked dead last. He's earned it. Including William Henry Harrison in rankings like these continues to seem unfair. The guy only served a month in office before dying. Yes, he's right. Well, he was basically in the hospital with pneumonia the whole time. Similarly, the, while Biden has reason to be pleased with his position, well, not the hospital, the White House bed. <laughs> Similarly, while Biden has reason to be pleased with his position, I'm generally of the opinion that ranking presidents, while their terms are underway, isn't altogether wise. Eh, you got to put them somewhere, right? Give him an incomplete. He's still better than William Henry Harrison, no matter where you put him, right? I've argued that the rehabilitation of George W. Bush's reputation is problematic. This survey reinforces my concerns. He's number 32 in rankage, which seems unreasonably high. Yeah, he was a pretty bad president. He accomplished basically ruining the economy and starting an unnecessary war. What a great president. He should be in the bottom five. The political science, sorry, if you still think George W. Bush is a great president, you need to wake the fuck up. Ulysses S. Grant has now climbed all the way up to 17. I, uh, I have a hunch he can thank Ron Chernow. I'm not sure what that re refers to. Yeah. Scientists for the rankings, Coastal Carolina's University, Justin Vaughn, and University of Houston's Brandon Rottinghouse wrote on an analysis of the findings for the Los Angeles Times, which highlighted the decline in esteem for two important presidents. Andrew Jackson and Woodrow Wilson. Their reputations have consistently suffered in recent years as modern politics lead scholars to assess their 19th and 20th century presidency even more harshly, especially their unacceptable treatment of marginalized people. Of course, if recent history is any guide, we'll soon see a Trump on his social media platform insisting that the results were rigged and the scholars secretly agreed that he was tied with Lincoln at the top of the list. <laughs> no, I don't think. Anybody with any brains does not put Trump anywhere near a list of the greatest presidents. And of course, the one I referred to earlier was the the news about the democracy ranking, which is a different ranking, which is a, the latest democracy index is published. Norway, this is from positive.news. Norway has retained its status as the world's most democratic country in the latest edition of the democracy index, compiled by the Economist Intelligence Unit, the EIU, the report offered some glimmers of good news despite despite recording a decline in doc democracy globally. The number of democratic countries increased by two to 74 in 23 as Paraguay and Papua New Guinea moved from hybrid regimes to flawed democracies. However, the global average score 
fell from 5.29 in 22 to 5.23 in 23. This is in keeping with a general trend of regression and stagnation in recent years and marks a new low since the index began in 2006. A new low for democracies, not cool. Western Europe was the only region to record improvements in democracy, although there were marginal 0.01 points. Joining Norway at the top and were, in order, New Zealand, Iceland, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Ireland, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Taiwan. The UK ranked 19th, and the US, considered a flawed democracy, came in at 29. Well, thank you for your little push in the right direction there, positive We are a flawed democracy. And of course, the perfect democracies are, there are no perfect perfection in these things. All right. Okay. So uh, really, there as we long are. as there's humans, there's no perfection. It seems to be if you're cold weather, you're going to have a decent democracy. That's the way I get for this because you got Norway, Sweden. Well, yeah, you guys have to stick together, otherwise you freeze to death. You guys up up at the fifty. Uh, I think it's honestly, I think it's because of the socialism. Those those guys are very socialist states, so. Their government actually cares about the people, and that's why they have such good democracy. The government yeah, the actually only one cares. <laughs> the only one I don't see in a temperate zone, a, 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 a northern temperate zone, is probably... Um, shit, they're all... Oh, except for New Zealand. New Zealand's the only one. Yeah, <laughs> right? New Zealand's pretty temperate. Well, it's in Southern Hemisphere. I don't know what the weather's like. But anyway, in Taiwan, Taiwan has got a tropical type climate, I believe. Back to you. All right, good job, uh, Nordic countries, for being better than us, as always. Taiwan's a great democracy as long as China lets them. Huh? So yeah, as long as they don't get invaded by China, they have a great democracy. Um, let's go ahead and go to our next story, which is about. Speaking of nations and governments and people, tribalism. This is from Positive News at by Lucy Purdy. People have the potential to rise above tribalist tendencies and significantly increase their moral circle of care, according to new research. Tribalism exerts a potent grip on its pr us primitive humans, compelling us to place loyalty and familiarity above reason and compassion in all sorts of ways. I don't know that guy. I don't care if they got run over by a car. I don't know him. It's probably a scam anyways. Actually, it is common that there is a common scam where people, uh, you know, fall over and then they, you know, rob you or something. But anyways, tribalism. It can be harmless and even fun like supporting a beloved sports team um, and beast and the so-called culture wars have shown how people could be pushed into tribal corners with much more ominous results take hope then from a new piece of research that suggests humans have the potential to overcome tribalist tendencies and significantly increase their so-called moral circle the people that value and care about arranged by a key player of global compassion coalition and released on wednesday which was last week, Wednesday, so February 14th. The findings are potentially game-changing, according to the lead researcher. I don't wanna, you know, 
be cool or look at me, I'm so much better than everyone. But uh, yeah, I do this all the time. Oh, increasing my global compassion. But I think that's because for a lot of people, empathy and compassion is very hard to do. Um, it does leave you open to getting hurt and harmed because some people will take advantage of your compassion and your empathy for them and then take advantage, well, take advantage of them. So I can understand why more people aren't compassionate in this world, especially in capitalist society that is very doggy dog. You know, I must get on top because if I'm not on top, I'm getting stepped on. You know, where's my trickle down econ economics or whatever. So <laughs> I can understand why a lot of people aren't um, globally compassionate and are tribalistic because they feel safer when they're in their boxes. With their, I know these people, they'll, they care about me. <laughs> Research has shown that there are are also habitually drawn towards people and groups who lock, look or, oh sorry. Research has shown that we as humans are habitually drawn towards people and groups who look or sound similar to us. Our friends and family first of all. This natural tribalism is often cited as a reason why cultural differences lead to animosity and even violence. Solutions every Saturday uplift. Oh sorry, that was an ad. What? has been less clear is whether it's possible to overcome such tendencies to help us extend our care and concern to people outside their in-group. To find out, researchers at the University of Queensland in Australia invited people to take part in a study aimed at expanding their circles of concern. Partic participants took part in a two-hour workshop designed to help them develop more compassion for themselves and others. There were they were then asked to continue with compassion-based exercises for two weeks. The results showed that the intervention made a significant difference to participants' levels of concern for individuals beyond their immediate family and friends. This included people who are stigmatized or even sold villains, such as murderers. It also increased people's concern for the environment and for the sentiment and non oh sorry for sentient and non-sentient animals. Research explained. Crucially, the results were shown to hold over time. A three-month follow-up indicated that once expanded, people's circles of concern continued to encompass new groups and communities. The researchers believe that the findings could offer significant insight at a time when world appears to be becoming more divided and hostile, only because that's what the news stories focus on. Uh, <laughs> we're probably the same amount of divided and hostile as we've always been, but you just see it more because the news is only talking about these guys beat up this guy or these countries hate each other and what about the countries that don't get along? We don't talk about those ones, you know? Except for yesterday, we did talk about Ukraine and Japan, you know? Woohoo! We support Ukraine, Japan said. We're gonna give them money so they can reconstruct their country, you know? That's positive. Yeah, and they don't, what, they have nothing to do with each other, right? Japan and Ukraine, what's their history? Not, not very much, so. They argue that not only can these approaches help to heal divides and also create greater unity and cooperation on major issues of global concerns, such as climate change and inequality. What we've seen in this study is that human moral circles are essentially elastic, said Professor James Kirby, lead researcher and member of the Global Compassion Coalition. Under certain conditions, they might be quite narrow, but with help, they can significantly expand, growing to incumbents even those people who might previously have thought as being villains that this kind of result can be achieved in just two hours. Plus some continued practice is potentially game-changing. We need leaders who care. The research comes in a year of multiple notable elections around the world. 
It shows Kirby said that we don't have to settle for war, conflict, or hostility and division. We're shown, showing that humans have the capacity to deeply be compassionate, caring, cooperative, all attributes that are going to need if we're to deal together with the challenges facing our world. Marcela Matos, researcher at the University of Coimbra in Portugal and chair of the Global Compassion Coalition Science Committee added, this groundbreaking study provides important evidence showing that cultivating compassion, even through low intensity interventions, can have transformative benefits that can go beyond the individual and have ripple effects way beyond the closest circle of care and moral concern. Through compassion and training, we may spark the inner change we need in our moral expansiveness, which can be pivotal, pivotal to foster the systematic change we need to overcome some of the sources of suffering we currently face in the world. Faced with challenges that cross borders, the climate crisis, poverty, and war, to note just three, the skills that this intervention gave participants are exactly those we need to be cultivating in national and world leaders, added Jennifer Nadel, co-director of Compassion in Politics UK and director of Compassion Politics of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, Stanford. We need leaders who can see beyond their own tribe and represent needs, concerns, and the futures of all. So, I agree. Uh, it is actually very scary to think there are people out there who don't feel this way, but I am a naturally compassionate person, and if I see somebody, I recognize them first and foremost that they're another human. There are people out there who actually are so in their circle that other people, to them, are objects, right? They're not other humans, they're just an object that is there, you know, like a tree, you know? <laughs> Ah, a person on a bike fell over. Not my problem, you know? That's has nothing to do with me, you know? No compassion, no, you know, people don't say hi to each other on the streets, stuff like that, you know? Other humans are out there. And I agree with this study as a personal champion of compassion. Care about the people you see out there in the world, your neighbor, the dude across the street on the 15th floor of your apartment complex. They're all going through their lives and we all just need to give each other more empathy and compassion and break away from tribalism. Because you know what happens if you have tribalism, you have populism. And then gov uh, government of politicians can go, hey, you, yeah, you specifically, your group of people, I'm your champion, please vote for me. And then next thing you know, you have a demagogue on in office because, hey, that guy's our champion. He likes only us and no one else. <laughs> but there you go, my story on how humans are compassionate. You know, friendship is magic and love can conquer all. All that shit is not just poetry, but it's reality. Your story. All you gotta do is tell people that they're special and all those different people have got something wrong with them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're not like Different you and me. Yeah. That's scary. What Trump did. Look, we're going to build the wall, keep them foreigners out. They're going to take your children and put them in slavery. <laughs> like that's not anything that's ever happened in the history of anything. But hey, let's let's pretend it's going to happen just because we can get all the racists on our side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, good news. This is from. Uh, Cooldown.com, their business section. A new high-speed rail project linking two major cities will rival 
the time travel of planes. It's good news. Residents of the United Kingdom and visitors should have an even easier time traveling between London and the Scottish capital city of Edinburgh by the end of the year, as a new high-speed rail service between the two cities is expected to debut. Taking a train from one city to the other usually takes passengers around five and a half hours, with the journey occasionally being completed in as little as 4.5 hours. The new high-speed rail operated by LNER will slash those times, completing the trip in just over four hours. Well, that doesn't seem like a big savings. <laughs> 4.5 to four, okay. Operated by, okay, all right. On the way, we'll make only two stops at Newcastle and York. One train will run per hour. Fair prices have not yet been announced. The trip will be quicker, at least as quick door to door as you had been traveling by air, LNIR's managing director, David Horn, said per Euronews. The service is aiming to launch in December 24. It is good news, Euronews observed. That's true, not just for the travelers of the UK, but for the planet as well. High-speed rail has been shown to be the most economic, eco-friendly form of long-distance travel, producing way less planet heating pollution per passenger than planes or cars. According to one scientific study published in Transport Policy, commercial train travel produces one-seventh as much as much planet warming gases as commercial air routes. China's high-speed rail, system, which has been built up incredibly quickly over the course of less than two decades, is the envy of the high-speed rail systems all over the world. However, many other countries are investing heavily in train systems, which can run on clean, renewable energy and transport people quickly, efficiently, and relatively cheaply. India, for instance, is investing heavily in a bullet train network. The United States, which remains extremely car-centric, is further away than most from having a comprehensive train system, although a small number of private companies are working on projects that would, say, connect Houston to Dallas or Southern California to Las Vegas. So there's one going like Madison to Minneapolis to Milwaukee, that kind of thing. You just get on a train and forget your problems, you know? Yep. Except when the train's late, then you have a problem. But that's another story. In other news in, in, involving England, specific, we have England set England set a biodiversity benchmark. In a world first, England has introduced legislation requiring all new developments to boost nature. The biodiversity net gain law came into force on Tuesday. It means that all inhabitants, well, it's either a law or legislation. Which one is it? It means that all inhabitants are destroyed. It means that, let's do this again. It means that if habitats are destroyed for homes, roads, or other developments, equivalent habitats must be recreated on site or elsewhere. New habitats must also deliver a 10% biodiversity gain rather than simply replacing what has been lost. It remains to be seen how the government will monitor and enforce the law. However, the Royal Institute of British Architects said it represents a major change for architects who would now have to design with nature. Scotland, Sweden, and Singapore are among the nations reportedly set to follow England's example. Of course, Scotland and England are the same country. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Wildlife Trust, a conservation charity, said the law, law could make positive contributions towards nature cons 
recovery and help address the climate emergency. However, if the planning and development manager, development manager, hard to say those words, Rachel Hackett said in the legislation lacked ambition, a gain of 10% will at best hold the tide against nature loss, she said. If we want to secure real recovery for nature, we'll need to set at least a 20% gain. So good news. Uh, the story's kind of flawed in that it says it's legislation and then it says it's a law later in the article. So if it's a law, it's a law. It's already passed. So back to you. More environmentally good news. Yeah. Good thing that human compassion's working. <laughs> okay. For our culture segment, we're going to talk about VR, virtual reality. Now, some older people are really having a whack at it and having a good time. This is from Terry Spencer on CP24 from Florida. Retired Army Colonel Farrell Patrick taught computer science at West Point during the 1970s and then at two private universities through the 1990s. So he isn't surprised by the progress of technology has made over the decades. But when the 91 year old got his first virtual reality experience recently, he was stunned sitting in a conference room at John Knox Village, a suburban of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, retirement community, Patrick sat up straight as his eyes and ears experienced what would be like in a Navy fighter jet flying off the Florida coast. Oh my God, that's beautiful, he blurted before the VR program brought the jet in for a landing on an aircraft carrier. John Knox Village was one of the 17 senior communities around the country that participated in a recently published Stanford University study that found the large majority of the 245 participants between 65 and 103 enjoyed virtual reality, improving both their emotions and their interactions with staff. The study is part of a larger effort to adapt VR so it can be beneficial to seniors' health and emotional well-being and help lessen the impact of dementia has on some of them. During the testing, seniors picked from seven-minute virtual experiences such as parachuting, riding in a tank, watching stage performances, playing with puppies and kittens, or visiting places like Paris or Egypt. The participants wore headsets that gave them 360 views and sounds, making it seem like they had been all but dropped into the actual experience. I brought back memories of my travels and brought back memories of my experience growing up on a farm, said Terry Colley former public relations director at the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C. Of his 2022 experience, Collie 76 likes swiveling in the chair to get a panoramic view. That was kind of amazing. Anna Sel Ann Selby, a 79-year-old retired counselor and artist, found VR's stimulated virtuality every area of my brain, all of the senses. I particularly enjoyed the ones dealing with pets because I have a cat and I've had pets most of my life, she said. Stanford's peer-reviewed study worked with the company Mind Immersive, found that almost 80% of seniors reported having more positive attitude after their VR sessions, and almost 60% they had said they felt less isolated socially. The enjoyment lessened somewhat for older respondents whose sight and hearing had deteriorated. Those who found VR less enjoyable were also more likely to dislike technology in general. Get this freaking whippersnapper off my head. I'm gonna go look out the window for 10 hours. In addition, almost 75% of caregivers said residents' moves improved after using VR. More than 80% of residents and almost 95% of caregivers said talking about their VR experience enhanced their relationship with each other. 
For the majority of our respondents, it was that their first time using virtual reality. They enjoyed it. They were likely to recommend it to others and look forward to doing it again, said Ryan Moore, a Stanford doctoral candidate who helped lead the research. We are proving VR to be a tool that really does help with well-being of our elders, said Chris Brickler, mean CEO and co-founder. The Texas-based company is one of a handful that specializes in virtual reality for seniors. It's far different than the two-dimensional television or an iPad. Separate from the study, John Knox Village uses virtual reality in its unit that houses seniors who have Alzheimer's disease and other dementia. It helps spur memories that lead to conversation with caregivers. It's like they come back to life when they tell their story, said Hannah Salem, the faculty's meaning, Meaningful Life Coordinator. She said that the others who don't talk much perk up when given a VR experience putting them in nature. They'll start laughing and saying, Ooh, I'm gonna catch the butterflies, Salem said. Catching butterflies is also a part of the game, meaning developed to help senior enhance their mobility and flexibilities. They stand and reach for objects. It's more fun for these seniors to come in and catch butterflies and work on shoulder rehab than it is to go pick up a weight, Brickler said. Brickler said his company's system was soon attached to Google Earth, so seniors can virtually visit neighborhoods where they lived, schools they attended, and places they have visited, sparking future conversations with caregivers. Such virtual visits can bring back a tremendous amount of joy and a tremendous amount of memories. And when the therapist or other caregiver can work with the older adult and talk through things we see, we definitely see what it provides that it provides an uplift, Brickler said. The company has worked on the biggest complaints seniors in the study had about VR. The headsets were too heavy. The heat they generated made their foreheads sweat, and sometimes the experience, experience created nausea, he said. The new headsets weigh about 6 ounces, or 189 grams, instead of a pound, 454 grams. They have a built-in fan for cooling, and the videos aren't as jumpy. The findings the seniors in their 80s and 90s enjoy VR less than those in their 70s might lead to changes for them, such as requiring less neck rotation to see all the scenery and making the visuals bigger, Moore said. On a recent afternoon at John Knox, a handful of seniors who had lived independently took turns again using virtual reality. Pete Audet experienced what would be like flying in a wingsuit, soaring over snow-capped mountains before landing in a field. Oh, running! Stop! exclaimed Aldette, a 76-year-old retired information technology worker. He thinks other seniors will really enjoy it, but they just need to learn how to use it. His wife Karen played with puppies and was so entranced by her virtual walk around Paris that she didn't hear questions being asked of her. I was there when I was here, said Karen Aldette, an 82-year-old retired elementary school teacher. Farrell, the retired army computer expat, expert, said he hopes to live to 100 because he believes the next five years will see a momentum change in VR. Still a technology enthusiast, he believes the cost of systems will drop dramatically and become part of everyday living, even for seniors. It's not going to be an elementary as it is now. It's going to be very realistic and very responsive, he said. It will probably be connected to your brain. That's right, guys. Get ready for your microchips in your brain so you can just sit in a chair and escape reality. And Hell I yeah. mean, at some point, uh, I guess because of the AI, all our jobs are going to be replaced and we don't have to work anymore. So we're just going to have to somehow have some way to live as humans without having to get paid to do anything because jobs will all be canceled, we'll I guess. Channel. Who knows? We'll, we'll all become VR 
hostesses and we'll just be on your VR set going, hi Raj, how are you doing today? And then you'll be sitting there in your little chair going, hey, I've had a good, pretty good day. And then, I don't know. I have no idea what's gonna happen in the future. I can't wait to see what happens with the VR headsets. And it's really nice to hear all of these elderly people experiencing life again after they've been probably tossed into a friggin' home. Their grandchildren never visit them, but now they can just make their own oh, grandchildren in the virtual <laughs> world. <laughs> to this day in history. Oh yeah, virtual reality. And uh, we all go to Mark said about reality. What? He said, reality sucks, but it's still the only decent place to get a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, you can't eat in virtuality. Not yet, anyways. That's right. Of course, the jobs will disappear, but the rest of us can become hackers and just sit back and have fun. Yeah, I guess so. Back into that virtual reality, throw a couple of you know, car bombs in there, whatever. <laughs> Put you know. some car bombs in virtual reality. Give yeah. everybody a fucking <laughs> coronary. All right, hackers are terrible. That's my point. This day in history, in 1872, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City opened to the public and later became one of the foremost museums in the world. 1902, Ansel Adams, the most important landscape photographer in the 20th century, was born in San Francisco, so he shared a birthday with Ansel Adams. 1909, Italian author Filippo Tommaso Marinetti coined the term futurism in the Parisian newspaper Le Figaro, or Le Figaro. 1929, the U.S. Congress formally accepted the deeds of secession of Eastern Samoa, forming American Samoa. 1943, the volcano Perucutan in the Michoacan state, Mexico, erupted, eventually burying two villages. Rest in peace. 1976, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization held its final exercise in Manila. And I don't know what that means. 1986, the Soviet Union launched the core module, the space station Mir. In 2005, American journalist and author Hunter S. Thompson, who created the genre known as Gonzo Journalism, a highly personal style of reporting that made him a counter culture icon, died of a self inflicted gunshot wound. Man, There's really a guy great that, news today. What the hell? There's a guy that loved guns. You want to watch how much he loved guns? Just watch his Conan O'Brien interview, where Conan goes out to his ranch in, I think, Colorado or wherever the hell he lived. And he's just shooting everything. Not anything living. This day in history, our featured event in 1962, John Glenn, Orbit of Earth. John Glenn, on this day in 1962, John H. Glenn Jr., the oldest of the seven astronauts, selected by NASA for Project Mercury Space Flight Training, began on this day in 1962, the first American to orbit Earth, doing so three times. So he had a fun ride. Other birthdays today, Charles Barkley, born in 1963, Cindy Crawford, born in 1966, Kurt Cobain, American musician of Nirvana, of the 27 Club, 
born in 1967 on this date. Trevor Noah, you share a birthday with Trevor Noah, a South African African comedian. And even better, Rihanna is your birthday, 1988. I should ask her for some money. Yeah, she's 35. She's 35, only 35. Rihanna, me and you have the same birthday. Can you lend me some money? (laughs) Imagine if that worked. (laughs) And once again, Britannica has trouble with math as they enlist her age as 35 when she's 36, born in 1988. So here we are, Britannica, a uh, learned, scholarly organization, can't do the simple math to make her 36. Happy birthday, Rihanna, you're 36. If Robert was born four years, four days later, he would have the same birthday as Rihanna. That's crazy. So close. That is crazy. Yeah, it just pisses me off that that Britannica can't do simple math. That doesn't piss me off. It's just disappointing, right? How do you? They think it's 2023. They think it's last year. They're living in the past. What day is? Oh, this day in rock and roll history. Listen to this day in history. Other other people born this day. Jay Giles of the Jay Giles Band was born this day. Walter Becker of Steely Dan was born on this day. So there you go. Even more birthdays. And those are basically all the birthdays today. Nothing really significant happened in music history, just a bunch of minor stuff. National Day, let's get to the last part of this. National Day today, besides National Cherry Pie Day. National Cherry Pie Day. National Love Your Pet Day. Don't combine those two, because your pet will get really sick on Cherry Pie. National Muffin Day. Cherry Pie Muffins. And it's National Comfy Day. So they have a bunch of people just being comfortable. I'm all into that. Freaking and it's National in a warm Day. living room, eat some muffins. Yep, hell yeah. Cuddle your pet. Unless you've got a pet alligator, don't cuddle your pet. <laughs> and uh, allow yourself to get comfortable, relax. It's time to get cozy in your favorite place and take a break from the daily grind. Hello, that's me. Five minutes from now. <laughs> Those are all days. Fit the print on February 24th. <laughs> or February 20th, 2024 on Before Coffee. Uh, all right. That has been me here from the Netherlands the on my birthday. Right. Sorry? I got the century right. <laughs> There's numbers in there somewhere. I'm going to go bake a cake for myself. Uh, So uh, stay tuned for that if you're interested in watching that. And we will see you tomorrow from Wacky Weird Wednesday, where we cover all that weird stuff that's been happening the last few in the past week that, you know, we live in a world and weird stuff happens in it. Have a good one. Here is your mic drop moment.
be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.